One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. He's tough. I'm Matt Riddle. I fought all around the world in steel cages, knocking people out and breaking bones. It's what I do. So again, do you want me to knock them out or tap them out? August 1 morning, identity revealed as the MMA legend Tito Ortiz. Hello there, folks. Welcome to We Don't Know Wrestling, and this will be the uh, second episode in the Desert Island Comp series. And for this episode, I am joined by the one and only Quentin Moody. Quentin, how are you doing? There has to be at least a few more people in the world named Quentin Moody, but um, I'm doing good, Sam. This is the first time we've done anything show-related in over a year, so I have to ask you... Uh, What's the deal, and why have you been avoiding me? Um, you're too intimidating. Uh, <laughs> psychology is dead is really making me uh, shaking my boots over here. Um, I was like, I, I can't, I can't give him the correct platform here. Um, but it's been a year. I, you said that, and I was like, how? Uh, it doesn't feel that way because we talk often in a defunct website's Slack chat. Uh, so yeah, it doesn't feel like we've uh, haven't done this in a while, but yeah, I'm ready to get get into it with you. All right, I'm ready too. Um, I listened to the first episode with uh, Tom Batista, and Tom is an interesting guy. So you guys had a lot of discussions that went places I did not expect for sort of like taking matches with you to a desert island. Yeah, I didn't see a lot of that coming. It was a little bit uh, left field uh, at some points, but overall, I was I'm real excited to see where this goes. Uh, I think Tom was. An interesting character to uh, kickstart it. But alright. We're going to open this up. Because this is now... There's a formula now. We Don't Know Wrestling has a format. Officially with this series. And that's to figure out... How the heck did you get into the hardcore end... Of the wrestling fandom. Because it's one thing to hop into Um, just wrestling. There's another thing to hop into... What we nerds are doing now. Okay, um, so I guess the, there's never been a time where I remember not watching wrestling, which is sort of a basic, boring answer, but legitimately, I've, most, a lot of my memories of being a child involve watching professional wrestling, so even when it's just WWE, I feel like I've always been a hardcore nerd as a kid, from getting bootleg DVDs of, uh, from my, uh, is from my aunt's um, at the time boyfriend, so I would get bootleg DVDs of old WCW, WWF, ECW shows, documentaries on like Calgary and Stampede Wrestling and uh, the like the Death of Devon Eriks and all that stuff. So as a kid, I had a whole bunch of bootleg wrestling DVDs that I just spent hours upon hours watching. So by the time I got older and I am more aware of like the history of ECW. It's like I've already seen this stuff before because I was seeing it when I was like eight, nine years old, watching it on my PlayStation Two. Um, as far as like branching out in like other regions and stuff like that, I actually discovered it fairly young. I think maybe being eleven or twelve because I would look up uh, the Great Muda and Jushin Liger on YouTube, and I wasn't really watching modern Japan at that point. The only modern Japan exposure I'd had was uh, 
when ROH or TNA would bring guys in like Hiroshi Tanahashi and TNA or uh, Kenta and Mara Fuji's um, uh, um, uh, when they got booked for ROH. But I was watching a whole bunch of old New Japan. And for a while, that was the only Japanese wrestling I knew. And still, I started reaching out into um, all Japan and Noah and things along those lines. I didn't start watching modern Japanese wrestling full stop until 2012, 2011. And that was mainly to watch Kenny Omega. And after that, it was DDT, current New Japan, current All Japan, Noah, uh, I just I somehow discovered Dragon Gate before that, but I didn't I wasn't able to get a hold of any shows because I was just looking for Akira Tozawa matches mainly. But um I was always like a hardcore wrestling fan, but now I'm a legitimate crazy person because I'll just try to find anything from Europe, Japan, um territories that weren't like big draws like uh I don't know. So like a Portland always has my always has more of my fascination than like your typical Carolinas and JCPs and Floridas. And yeah, I just try to watch as much as I can. I feel like I've just always been a big wrestling nerd. That is so interesting. It feels like most people have to sort of go through that initial mainstream that's all you're watching sort of phase that lasts a pretty decent amount of time before um, you're allowed to do all the Google searching on on the computer. Um, what I mentioned is like um, I was a big TNA fan. Um, when I was seven, eight years old is when I first discovered TNA because TNA was on television. They were on Fox Sports at first, and then transitioned to Spike TV. And I have like vivid memories of watching that first episode that they had on Spike TV. And yeah, I've never been like just a WWE person because TNA was around and TNA had my interest because of uh, people like AJ Styles that like I'll mention later on during the show. But TNA is definitely a big part of my fandom and part of the reason why I've never been like the sort of like all I know is WWE guy because as a kid, I always knew that there was more than more than WWE out there. Um, yeah, that's just... I, I, I wonder what it's like now entering the fandom. I wonder if it's more... You're instantly hopping into groups that are all inter intermingling already. Um, like to me, it's like if you, if you're like a kid now, or someone that's like in their young teens and starting to like delve into the hardcore fandom now, it's easier because say if you were a big NXT guy and you wanted to Google Johnny Gargano, and like obviously like front like the front page first page stuff is going to be like his matches and NXT and those big angles there. But eventually, if you keep digging, you're going to find, like, oh, he was in AIW, or he was in Dreamwave, or he was in Dragon Gate USA, or he was in Evolve. Like, eventually, those things are going to come up on the search functions. And that's, like, that's, like, how it's, I imagine it's easier, but I also don't know how much people are digging into it that way. Yeah, I just, I'll be, it'll be interesting to see where, who's entering in a few years, and uh, who's kind of coming after the current group of folks that we're all friends with. Um, but all right, all right, you have a podcast, Psychology is Dead. So right. what made you want to start that podcast? Um, so the first podcast I ever 
did those my own. I did like guest appearances on some shows that on the now um, non-existent wrestling with words. I did a podcast called Surprise S Lucha um, with a uh, Brandon Wagman, and I really liked doing it. Lucha is one of my like main loves when it comes to professional wrestling. Even when Lucha's down, like I just appreciate the style and the art form and everything that goes into it and how unique it is. And because there wasn't um, that much Lucha coverage other than um, the Cubs fan and then Fredo Esparza um, and Kurt Brown and like a frequent basis and people like Rob Viper uploading classic matches, there wasn't a lot of people talking about Lucha on shows. So I wanted to fill that gap or at least be one of the voices that people would look to for Lucha coverage. And that was fun for a while, and I really enjoyed doing that show. But I'm also a person that I just watch a lot of wrestling. And I realized that only doing a Lucha podcast kind of limited the amount of wrestling I could talk about. And I want to talk about European wrestling. I want to talk about American indies and American wrestling and Japanese wrestling. All that stuff that I find cool and interesting that I wouldn't get to talk about on Surprise Size Lucha. And I'm just, I'm a, I'm a thinker. I like to have big discussions that maybe don't require don't maybe shouldn't be that deep and thought out but something that i have some things i think have more layers than people will give credit for credit to or pay attention to and that's sort of where psychology is dead came from and that i wanted to have discussions about things that i don't think people were really going in depth on and why they like professional wrestling and i think that's what makes me different than a lot of other hosts of podcasts in this wrestling bubble and that you sort of go down results in news, and if you talk about a match, the main thing people are going to talk about is, oh, I gave a four and a half stars and four and three quarter stars. It's like, no, like there's more as to why you liked a professional wrestling match. There's details and nuances as to why you liked it. And I like talking about why I love professional wrestling and why something catches my attention. And I like doing it with people I find interesting and have things to say. And just to fill that void of, I just get to talk about anything I want on that show. So psychology as that just came from me wanting to expand what I was able to talk about with people. That That's very nice. That's very, very nice. They will be able to create that outlet for yourself, essentially. Um, never been on the show. Can't really speak to it. I've heard some episodes. Pretty good stuff. Um, I've been on the show. <laughs> well, I've been on a segment of the show. It's, <laughs> it's, I was there with clips from 10 other people um i don't i ten other people. It was like it was like five <laughs> okay sure it was sure it was i remember it differently um brock gets 20 hours a week uh sam gets 15 minutes it's fine <laughs> 20, 20 out 20 hours a week is crazy <laughs> um but all right yeah i the your podcast is fantastic and it's always great to hear you and your Whoever your guest may be, whether it be Brock, whether it be Tim, whether it be whoever, um, break down certain things and why it works for you. Um, and in some cases, putting your co-host in that episode uh, through a lot of work um, between Kenny and Megan and AJ Styles. But... <laughs> Torture Brock. <laughs> Brock. Brock goes through a lot on those shows. It's such because, a good like, bit. Because he doesn't like these people, but I make him watch all these matches, and then I grill him on the show and make him answer all these questions. It's great. <laughs> He's too much of an academic. He's just... It's like he craves uh, that feeling of being 
entrapped <laughs> in this wrestling hellscape that he's allowed himself to enter. Uh, but all right, that's Psychology's Dead. Grape Show talked about how you got here. Now we're gonna kick you off to a desert island. Uh, with your Desert Island comp, you have ten matches, three segments. We're going to kick it off with the first of your ten matches now. First up, it's going to be from NXT's TakeOver, I don't know how you want to say it, RE Evolution, Revolution. It's our Evolution. Our Evolution. That makes sense. Now I remember this. It's been a while since I've gone through the Twitter discussions of how to pronounce this name. Uh, like the like the, at the time they kept making these weird ass show names, and like I get being confused. By this. Uh, from Full Sail. Uh, December 11th, 2014, it's Sami Zayn versus Adrian Neville for the NXT Championship. Why did okay. the... What? What was that? I was gonna say, I was just gonna say, like, okay, like, I thought you were gonna lead into that. Um, so, this match is the culmination of one of my favorite wrestling stories ever told in, uh, uh, 2013, 2014, Sami Zayn arc. Uh, I did a lot of talking about this on the Art of Storytelling episode of Psychology as I did with Chad um, from Where Big Boys Play. And pretty much with me, Sami Zayn is one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. He is one of that that short list of guys that I just absolutely adore. And if someone ever said like a bad thing about them, I don't know how I'd react because like to me they're just so universally lovable. And I always loved El Generico. And when he got signed, obviously there's concerns because he wore a mask and he didn't talk. And if he did talk, it was jumbled up English or bad Spanish. And he comes to NXT and obviously you're not concerned about him in the ring. He's a fantastic worker, all-time great babyface. But you don't know how much personality he's going to be able to show. Now that he doesn't, now that he doesn't have a mask, now that he ha- now that he has to talk, and during this entire arc, he reveals himself as this fucking stellar talker, and it blew me away week in and week out about how he was able to carry this story, regardless of how much he lost and how close he got, and everything about that is that he could lose and he could come back and talk, and you just are still glued to the screen. There's a lot of nuances to his particular story about Adrian Neville, um, considering their history and how long they've known each other up to this point. And it's Sami Zayn's desire for the title. It's Adrian Neville being a dominant champion, and as time went on, taking shortcuts to ensure that he retained his title, and things like that that just make it a special moment for me. The match itself, the stipulation was this was Sami Zayn's last chance at the title, if he lost, this would be his last match at NXT and he had to leave. There was a, um, a promo I considered putting on my promos and angles segment. Um, 
does a go home for uh, the NXTR Evolution show where he talks about retiring and Eater Neville says, I don't want to be the one that sends you away. And then Sami Zayn ends it with a slap and yelling in his face. And it's a really dramatic and emotional match full of phenomenal performance from, performances from both guys. Eater Neville kind of gets viewed as an afterthought in this arc because Sami Zayn was so good. But Neville was like the perfect foil and perfect matchup in the ring. Uh, and everyone knows, obviously, that Sami Zayn wins. And it's one of my favorite moments in professional wrestling history to get to see this guy. That's one of my favorite wrestlers ever get this big emotional win that was all built up for him and his story. And it pays off for him. But his best friend, Kevin Owens, also debuted on this show. And Kevin Owens, who started the night as a babyface, comes out at the end of the match and hugs Sami Zayn. They're crying. They're embracing each other. It's a whole bunch of stuff. If you've been following these guys for years like I've been, it means a lot to you. And then as they're just walking up the ramp together, Kevin Owens rears the head that people that have been watching him for years already knew existed. It was this ugly, greedy monster that could never let Sami Zayn or El Generico have good things. And he ruins the title celebration, takes him out for a few weeks, apron, um, apron, power bomb on the apron, all that stuff. And it deflates you, but you're also excited for what happens next. It's like one of those all-time great wrestling one-two punches with a great match and a great angle. Like like um, Terry Funk and, uh, no, like Ricky Steamboat and, uh, and Flair and... Um, Say like something like Trevor Lee and Andrew Everett at Absolute Justice in 2016. It's something where the match is great and the angle is great. The total package is so phenomenal that it just leaves a lasting impact on you, and uh, that's why it's on my list. And I could I could watch this match and not get tired of it. It is something that continuously like racks my brain on how well it worked out because. I don't think Neville had had anything, anything to that level yet in WWE. And Sami Zayn had a few of these matches with Cesaro, um, even Tyler Breeze that I liked a lot, even Jack Swagger. But these guys just go out there and kill it in like a classic title match with a whole bunch of high-impact moves, and it's just done on a flawless level. Yeah, I think overall I probably enjoy the Cesaro matches more, but when you're taking the whole package into account, and if you're looking for something that has a little bit more layers, I think. Um, there's it's very... Not take, it's not to take away from the Cesaro matches, because, like, there's a whole bunch of just Sami Zayn earning to, like, trying to earn a guy's respect, but with the added stipulation that, like, Sami Zayn, like, literally has to leave the company or leave NXT if he loses this match, like, there's a lot of stakes in this match, as the word the Cesaro ones don't really have th- those kind of stakes. Yeah, I, I do think the match structure was, a little, was definitely wasn't just high-impact moves. It had a little bit more going on. Um, and it's a combination of a story. It had, and it's the start of a new one um, that continues a much larger one, I guess. So it's just got, yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on that I think is mm-hmm. nice to unpack, especially when you're taking something with you uh, that you're going to have to spend a very long time with. Um, so there you go. Uh, I think that's a very strong start to uh, your your Desert Island compilation. Are you ready to move on to match number two? Yes, sir. Well, let's go.
It's from Turning Point 2005, taking place in the Impact Zone, August 12th. It's going to be AJ Styles versus Samoa Joe. Now, why is this match on your Desert Island compilation? So, imagine being eight years old, being a TNA fan, being introduced to Samoa Joe fairly recently. Um, AJ Styles, I've seen for about a year or so at this point. And... You just watch these two beat the ever-living shit out of each other. It blows my child mind to see something so angry, so something at the same time breathtakingly athletic and um, just unbelievable. It has a ton of crowd heat. It's in a promotion where like they're not running in front of a bunch of people in the impact zone, obviously. Um, it features one of my favorite commentary teams ever in Mike Tanae, Mike Tanae and Don West. And, like, this is something that just, as a kid, like, blows me away because I had never seen anything like this in WWE and in TNA, for that matter. Because even though Joe had been in there and I've seen Joe matches and I've seen AJ Styles matches, this just has a level of violence and anger and passion and animosity that I hadn't been exposed to before in wrestling. And... I think something like that is necessary when you're going to a desert island. Something that just, like, reminds you of pure violence. I can talk about how, like, emotional and dramatic a lot of these matches are and why they stuck with me because of those reasons. But violence is still, like, the core of professional wrestling. It's the core of why a lot of people watch professional wrestling. And Samoa Joe is the epitome of violence. And AJ Styles is this white meat baby face and... He's able to combat his violence and go at Samoa Joe harder than anybody's ever been able to go with him. And like obviously it has like the backstory of Samoa Joe turning his back on the X Division, um, the blood, the whole bloody towel thing with wiping Daniels with blood on the towel and carrying it with him. AJ Styles being offended that he would um, destroy his division like this. And it's just so great. It's the best T it's the best match in TNA history. It's the best match in a promotion that's like very significant in my wrestling fandom. And I can't get enough of it, truly. It's high replay value. I think more than anything that's on my list, it just has replay value that just keeps going up and going up and going up because you can't you don't get sick of two guys just hitting the shit out of each other. Yeah. So you did mention how you were a big TNA fan as you were younger. Um, do you think that plays a fact here uh, when you're looking at something uh, for a desert island comp, trying to figure out something that's not just phenomenal, but also uh, nostalgic in a way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's a lot of matches on my list where it's like a lot of nostalgia attached to it. And this is one of them where like, no matter how bad TNA gets, I'm not saying I even watch TNA or, DFW, Impact, whatever the fuck they are at this point. It's like, I can't deny what they were, what they meant to me when I was a child. And being eight years old, and the only things I had really latched onto in WWE were like Rey Mysterio and Eddie Guerrero and Chris Jericho. And even then, those guys weren't giving me matches like this. And then I go watch this other company that 
not like people in like the kids in my elementary school weren't really talking about because obviously I'm just a big fucking nerd, so like no one else really knows about this stuff or is really talking about it that way. And I'm just like, this is incredible. Like this is legitimately amazing and I wanna watch more of it and I need more of it and this is now my favorite wrestling company because guys like AJ Styles and Samoa Joe left that big of an impact on me. No um no pun intended. But um yeah, nostalgia definitely plays a big part in this. And something about me is like, I always talk about how nostalgia is okay as long as it doesn't lead you to being like, oh, this is trash years later. Because like, obviously, like, it's okay to like something. Like, it meant something to you. It's okay to like, recognize that and talk about like, why something was just so awesome to you when you were a kid. It doesn't make it, you know, not awesome because you're 25 years old and you grew out of it, obviously it did something right for you at that point in time in your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, this is a tremendous match. And I think these two at the top of their game, um, Mm -hmm. you're really seeing two of the all time greats do their thing. It's the two Um, guys that I think were like the best wrestlers in the world that that year. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, Joe, Joe's 2005 was, is up there for, Best year I've ever seen of any wrestler ever. Uh, it's that good. Um, cool. Yes. Great. Great. Um, if you don't have anything else, then we'll move on to match number three. In the beginning, darkness moved across the face of the deep. It's going to be from WrestleMania 25, Reliance Stadium. We've done it before. We're doing it again. It's Shawn Michaels versus The Undertaker. Okay. So, Tom Batista had this on um, his Dead Island list, and he hates this match. But um, I originally had it, uh, like, when you approached me for the idea of this, I always knew that this was going to be on my list. So, it wasn't just to, like, combat Tom Batista or anything if Tom's listening. Um... This is maybe the most important match out of anything when it comes to my wrestling fandom. This is like, I talk about always being a big wrestling nerd, right? And I always knew how much I liked wrestling. I knew that I wouldn't be watching these fucking 1990s ECW and WCW DVDs. I wouldn't be watching these terrible WrestleManias from the 80s if I didn't love professional wrestling. But this just showed me how much I love it. Um, I love Shawn Michaels. I'm uh, a very big Shawn Michaels fan. Um, I understand everything people don't like about him, but everything people don't like about him is why I like him. So Shawn Michaels just is someone that I'll always have... Um, respect for and someone that I'll always enjoy as a worker. An Undertaker in his last few years um wrestling has really turned it up as far as being an interesting character in the ring and out of the ring. And I had seen their match at um Bad Blood ninety seven, had the first Hell in a Cell. It's a great match. But these two hadn't interacted in like over ten years at this point. 
So it just feels extremely fresh. It feels like a dream match, which again, it's like so weird to say for a match that literally has happened before and it was a big feud, not just like something that happened once and you forgot it. It introduced this big stipulation, but all these years later, it still feels like a big deal. And I ordered this show live um, out of my own money. I think I was, um, fuck, uh, how old was I at this point? Had to be like 11, maybe, when this when this show happened. Had to be like 2009. And I watched it with my brother on the couch. And it's just one of the best wrestling-related experiences I've, I've ever had because I got to share it with my little brother, who isn't really as much into wrestling anymore. And we just got to go crazy and watch this whole show. And then by the time this match happens, there's just so much shit in here that we bought into. We bid on false finishes. Um, when Undertaker does that tope over the ropes and he lands on his fucking head. I remember like running to my parents' room and saying the Undertaker might actually have died because it just looked that awful. And again, like I knew wrestling wasn't real at this point. But it's just something where even that young, I'm not into dirt sheets and all that shit yet. It's like... I just knew, like, oh my god, that was not meant to, like most like meant to look that way, and it's just one of those things where I just never have had that much fun watching a wrestling match ever, and I don't really get to share many wrestling experiences with people because um, just the nature of who I am, I'm a pretty like I'm a loner. I like to just keep to myself, um, and getting that getting to share that with my brother uh, really meant a lot to me at that point in my life, and still does now and it's something that i'm able to look back on fondly still um i can admit i look back on this match and obviously it's not the best match ever i don't i wouldn't say um even though for a while i would say it was for me but you know it's nostalgic and i appreciate this match for making me realize that professional wrestling was something that like i could not live without as like maybe sad as that is to some people it's just like it's just like a gateway to discovering even better things as far as entertainment. It makes me think, it makes me feel a lot of emotions, it makes me happy, makes me excited. And this match is like, the thing I would point to is like, why I'm still a wrestling fan the way I am. So this is definitely kind of, this feels like an origin story now. Um, the, the Quinn Moody story. Um, <laughs> the, that this this match has a lot of similarities with stuff that when you talk about wrestling now, I can see connections too. Um, mm-hmm. Just in my like, this, like this match definitely changed the way wrestling works. This match like fundamentally changed. I think the way people looked at a great match, I would say. And like obviously, and you know, like all Japan in the nineties, like they were. I think they were. I think they were going out there to have great matches a lot of the time. But as far as like it just becoming a big mainstream thing again to have a match, the match of the year at least in the U.S., or in a major promotion like WWE, Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker like very much changed that in 2009. Yeah, and I think 2009 was also a year where the internet, uh, not re- not just wrestling uh, on the internet, it, the grand scheme of the internet uh, was changing in social media, um, and things like Match of the Year meant more, um, it became more widespread ideas that were, I think, influenced by the internet, as well as Dido uh, E, I think, was kind of a relationship and how that kind of spread like wildfire, um, where Mr. WrestleMania started to hold a lot more of 
cachet. Or even like the Undertaker is like after. The, and here's the thing: I think Undertaker was having good matches at WrestleMania before this, at least since when he faced Randy Orton at WrestleMania 21. That was when he started having like actually good matches on these shows. And you could go back and maybe say like Undertaker versus Ric Flair, like WrestleMania 18. But the Orton matches when I was like, oh yeah, like the streak actually means something and it can also be attached to a great match after years and years and years of watching these WrestleManias and being like, eh, okay, that was fine. And like, that's what it became is like Undertaker, oddly enough, became like the great match machine in WWE, at least for that one night a year is that you would go to WrestleMania, watch WrestleMania and be like, okay, the Undertaker at least is going to give you a fucking awesome match. And I liked Undertaker a lot, at least from like 2000, to like 2009-2010 but like that he was never that guy and to see him like transform from that into like the WWE like main event machine was fucking weird <laughs> I, I I saw Undertaker versus Nathan Jones and A-Train it was a hell of a professional <laughs> wrestling contest um, WrestleMania um, 19 yeah I think so I think so uh there's a, I think that was the first, no, WrestleMania 18 was the first WrestleMania I bought, but then I was like, I gotta do it again the next year. Um, but yeah, it definitely interested how Taker's perception changed. Uh, the whole idea of the streak changed. Uh, great match ideas changed. Um, personal nostalgia. Um, I have a question, like, were you, because the way I know you, like, when I first met you, obviously, like, you're someone that likes to dabble in obscure indies and pe- things that people aren't talking about as much. You like to stay away from hype and look for things that are a little bit more under the radar. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. So, like, it's for, for me, it's, like, weird to imagine you being, like, a kid watching WrestleManias. Because, like, obviously, like, like obviously we all come from somewhere, and that somewhere often is WWE, and we branch out into whatever. But just because of who you are and because you don't watch WWE... It just blows my mind to hear you say, like, oh, yeah, I remember being a kid watching WrestleMania 18. <laughs> no, yeah, I was definitely into the World Wrestling Federation uh, at that that period of time. And I, stuff like Rock Hogan just gets you electric. Um, right. There's still nothing really like that. Um, but at the same time, I'm not sure... Uh, it's WrestleMania. I I don't think I I think that's also part of it. Um, I wasn't buying all the pay per views. I wasn't really probably uh, watching weekend and we got. Um, that was probably the time where I stopped recording on my VHS a little less and a little less. Um, but yeah, I used to be anything that was on TV that I can get my hands on. I guess I was still gonna check out at some point. Um, do you miss being a WWE fan at any point? Uh, not anymore. No, it's, there's a lot of wrestling out there. There's a lot. Of, <laughs> right. They got they got a whole network worth of stuff. Uh, it's a busy time, uh, and people are like, you don't need to watch everything. But also, um, there's a whole lot of people that do, and that's just way too much of a commitment. Uh, they say you don't have to, but it feels like you're being told you still have to. Um, just by virtue of, if you're a WWE fan, you do watch, on the online, if you're a WWE fan on the online, you're watching everything, and you're giving them the star ratings, and you're giving your thoughts. Um, There there are people that watch the Mixed Match Challenge, and I'm like, 
okay, like, like you want to watch more WWE? Like, okay, man. <laughs> yeah, I'd rather hop on the high spots and figure out what new indie they've decided to add this week uh, that runs in front of twenty people. So that's that's my life now, um, and I'm very I'm very okay with that. But stuff like uh, big WrestleMania matches, such as Michaels vs. Taker, um, hard to duplicate anywhere else. Yes. Uh, well, okay. I think that does it for match number three. Well, let's move on to match number four. From, I pulled this off the interweb, uh, Champion Gate in Osaka, 2015. This happened in February 28th. From the Osaka Bodymaker Coliseum number two, Kira Tozawa versus, I don't know how to pronounce the name, Kizzy. Kizzy. That makes more sense. Kizzy. <laughs> why is this on the list? Um, Similar to why Sami Zayn versus Eddie Neville was on my list, Kira Tozawa is one of my favorite wrestlers ever. And on top of being one of my favorite wrestlers ever, He's responsible for me getting into what may be my favorite promotion ever in Dragon Gate. And if you know anything about the history of Akira Tozawa, um, it took him a really long time to get out of the dojo in Dragon Gate. Um, even when he got when he got out of the dojo, they like made fun of him and settled him with the um, Tozawa um, Juku gimmick. Um, and eventually he got shipped off to um, the United States for an excursion and... DGUSA and PG, um, um, PWG and things like that and at the time I was just like watching indie stuff here and there that I could find um, I wasn't like watching every single PWG show or DGUSA show but if I could find something on YouTube or whatever like CD or parts of the wrestling like wrestling um, online I could, I could find it on I would, I would watch it and uh, Akira Tozawa just always stood out to me he was a small charismatic dude that was fast as fuck and had incredible looking German suplexes and was just super fiery and endearing and like you like fall in love with the guy and he goes back to Dragon Gate in 2011 and that's why I'm like okay maybe I'll start following Dragon Gate now because I knew where he was from and now that he's going back and he's like this fucking fantastic wrestler I'm like okay uh, maybe I'll start following Akira Tozawa's um, career there. And that's when I fell in love with Dragon Gate as a promotion. And in Akira Tozawa's uh, history in Dragon Gate, he's not someone that wasn't pushed. Like, a lot of people would say that because he never won the Dream Gate, it's, not, it's like he was never pushed or something. Like, Akira Tozawa was pushed. It's just he wasn't pushed to the level people wanted him to be pushed at. Former um, Twin Gate champion, former Triangle Gate champion... Um, but the thing that always eluded him is that he had never been a single champion. He had always been a champion with other people. He always lost his Dreamgate shots. Um, so here we have him facing KZ for the Bravegate title. And um, this also is the same weekend in which it was Uha Nation's, now Apollo Cruz's, um, graduation weekend, graduation show. And Akira Tozawa got to go out there and what I think is a fucking incredible match with KZ. It's a guy. It's a match that like you would not expect to be as good as it is because I don't think KZ had anything on his resume that great yet. 
Uh, it's a lot of arm work, something that pe people that don't really watch Dragon Gate but hear about Dragon Gate must say they don't really sell and do things like that. And the characters I was selling is um, selling his arm off like that in that whole time. Um, really sympathetic, um, great way to work around not having his arm and working around the pain and things like that. And it really just sticks with me because it's a Kiritazawa's first singles title win. And seeing how much it meant to that guy just sticks with me forever. Because even if it's like the secondary title in the promotion, the secondary singles title, realistically, at the time, maybe like the third most important belt in the company, it's still like Akira Tozawa finally got some validation. That this guy that's been an integral part of Dragon Gate for the 2010s finally gets some sort of like, yeah, we recognize how good you are and how hard you've worked. Here's this belt. And I love this match, but I also love the fact that Akira Tozawa just like breaks down and gets to have this awesome moment after years and years of working and dealing with a lot of shit backstage. Uh, I can watch this match in particular the post match and just how emotional characters Alva is just all the time. And like it doesn't make me cry. That like it might, might water my eyes a little bit, but every time I see a character's Alva clutching that belt, it just reminds me of a great time. It's also the best year in Dragon Gate history twenty fifteen is. And because it's happened so early in the year, like this is just like one of the starting points of what was an awesome Dragon Gate year. And I don't know, just seeing him win that belt just meant a lot to me for him getting me into this promotion that I now love and uh, maybe my favorite Dragon Gate moment ever. Tozawa the Gateway. Um, yeah, he was definitely the gateway for me. And, like, obviously people like um, Shingo and Chima, the um, ROH 6 man 2006, but for when I started paying attention to the indies, like, Akira Tozawa was the only... Dragon guy in PWG, even though there were guys obviously working DG USA. So seeing him face Chris Hero and Kevin Steen and team with team with Kevin Steen to face um uh who, who the fuck did they face like Generico and Ricochet I think uh but yeah like how just left a big impact on me and like I can't understate how much I love Dragon as a promotion like that promotion just like speaks to me on like everything I love about professional wrestling as far as like storytelling and how far in advance things are laid out and why you should care about these characters is like Dragon Gate just appeals to me for all those reasons and Akira Tozawa is one of the most sympathetic characters uh, ever in wrestling uh, he's like people compare, compare like Kenny Omega to like Kenta Kabashi and I get it but I think like Akira Tozawa is probably like like the uh, like the other guy though, like compared to Kabashi, because like he's super over the top, he's super dramatic, he yells a lot, um, has over the top facial expressions, cries, but like just like Kabashi, just like Omega, like that stuff just appeals to me. I no problem with people being like over the top and excessively dramatic, and Akira Tozawa just has um, a knack for those things. Absolutely, I think Tozawa's the sort of the second wave gateway to Dragon Gate um, after the RH6 mans. Um, what are your thoughts on KZ's hair? <laughs> At this point or now? All time. I mean, he's, time. There, he's, he's got, he's got looks. 100% he's got looks. 
Um, they're unique to put them in a nice way. I don't know. Like I don't. I like his current hair more than I liked um a lot of the hairstyles he used to rock in the past. Um, I miss his overalls. Uh, as far as like his overall look, that's fair. Um, he used, used to wear sunglasses and all that shit too. Like he was a he was an interesting dude, but. Yeah, Casey's hair was always something that I paid attention to whenever I watched a Dragon Gate show. Like, all right, what's he gonna do now? <laughs> because um you know how like you have like those constants in Dragon Gate, like Shingo's always gonna have his mullet, like Mochizuki's hair is like always brown and like she like Yoshino's hair always looks sort of slicked back, like you're always like, Okay, what's Casey gonna do next? <laughs> yeah. Uh I I'm not sure I like him as a wrestler. I do like his hair. That that is always gonna be a game changer. I'm always. Have you seen um, Masaki Mochizuki versus KZ from February seventh of this year? I have not seen a single full match from 2018. Um, so well, talk to me again at the end of March. <laughs> at the end of March, and I'll, I'll I'm gonna try to watch that because uh, I like Mochizuki. Mochizuki. Never mind. Never mind. I'm Mochizuki. not going to watch the match. I'm not going to watch the you match. <laughs> yep, I've already quit. I've already quit. Um, but all right. Tozawa. Uh, my brother's a big fan of Tozawa. He's only seen him for one weekend. Instant fan. Um, He's one of the most like infectious guys like I could ever recall in wrestling. Again, it's like um, Sami Zayn or Generico or whatever. It's like, I can't imagine not liking Akira Tozawa, even if you're not a fan of like the Dragon Gate style. Akira Tozawa is just like that universal guy that like everybody can appreciate. When me and my brother went to King of Trios 2011, the two people came out that weekend uh, saying, "Okay, I'll watch whatever they do if you send me those videos." Uh, were Tozawa and Generico. Uh, so yeah, they are. You got a couple of infectious personalities on this list. But alright, ready to move on to match number five on your Desert Island comp. Carter against Tamura. Top of the bill bout. Should certainly see some sparks And they shake hands. Whoa! <laughs> well, I didn't expect to see that. That's unusual. But nevertheless, Tamura's ready to go. It is going to be from Root of Wrestling Ryogoku from the UWFI. Uh, February 14th, 1993, Budokan Hall, Kiyoshi Tamura versus Nobuhiko Takata. So, why is this match on your Desert on Comp, Quinn? So, um, Kiyoshi Tamura is, like, one of the most exciting wrestlers to ever live, at least in, like, his, like, real early years. I think his later work is still awesome, too, and he's, like, a veteran, but Young Kiyoshi Tamara, rookie, um, is fucking awesome, athletic, disrespectful asshole who's like a wizard on the mat and can get away with his disrespect because he can tap a guy out anyway. Going up against, um, like the big bad dude in, um, UWFI at the moment in Nobuhiko Takata. And I love this match because it's like the quintessential young punk getting his shit kicked in there's like obviously it's an issue of style like it's fucking stellar mat wrestling here between these two wizards of that stuff but the reason why i love it is because kiyoshi samura doesn't shake takata's hand at the beginning of the match and slaps him in the face 
So Takata beats the ever-living shit out of him. And it sounds like really basic and straightforward, and it is. But to me, it's like it's like the peak of this wrestling trope of like, okay, there's a young, arrogant punk who's disrespecting his elders. He has to get taught a lesson. It is like the prime example of this. And there's a lot of drama in it, um, despite the fact that Tamora is so disrespectful towards Takata. Like, you kind of want to see the guy win just to see how the places react to him, like, getting the upset win over this guy. And there's a few host spots in there, obviously, um, with Tamora catching some submissions that look very convincing, but Takata just winds up kicking the shit out of him over and over and over again. And um, I love the selling of um, Tamora, like, his wobbly leg, like, getting back up after the after after the referee is counting him down and how he just can't he can barely take any more and just he collapses towards the end because he's just gotten brutalized so much and it's just perfect wrestling to me it's one of the best matches ever to me it's something that doesn't have a lot of the emotional weight and connection that a lot of the other stuff that would make it into my my top matches ever would have but it's like flawless in a certain wrestling style and a certain wrestling story that I had to put it on here. And because of the fact that they somehow tell it in a shit style environment where like storytelling isn't like a must there. It's a lot of transitions and um, obviously what we now call MMA stuff that you can dig into there. If you're a fan of that or amateur wrestling and Brazilian Jiu Jitsu or any kind of striking um, martial arts as well. It's just like they somehow managed to tell this incredible story in this setting. I think shoe style is incredibly more versatile than people tend to give it credit for. Um, oh, I agree, I agree, I agree. Uh, but I was just thinking, like, for, like, certain stories, it's like, okay, maybe this guy is a loser going up against a big name. And I'm not sure I've seen as many young punk gets his shit kicked in by the top guy in the promotion or one of the top guys in the promotion and... Like, he has to, like, fight for his life kind of stuff. Well, I think maybe there's a little bit more layers in that way. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. What are your overall feelings about Takata as far as where he currently ranks, I guess, amongst the shoot-style pantheon? Uh, seems like in recent years he's taken quite a bit of a hit in his stock, and I don't, I personally don't know if I understand why. Yeah, I don't understand why either. Like, um, in the first, like, Smart's Choice poll in 2006, he wound up ranking super fucking high and i don't think he should have been that high either but i also think he i also don't think he should have been as low as he would end up being in um the 2016 gwe like he's great like i think other i think i like my favorites i love like Hiroshi tamara obviously big big alexander atsuka fan um desuke akeda um anjo uh yamazaki fujiwara um Han, I'm not as high on as a lot of people are, but Han is undeniable. But, like, after that, like, you gotta say Takata, I think. Like, I don't know where you would keep going as a, like, keep, like, skipping over Nobuhiko Takata. And, like, I don't think he's number one. Like, he might have been to a lot of people, like, he might have been to a lot of people in, like, 2006, but I don't think he's, like, below, like, a top 10 shoot style guy, especially if you're in that style. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Also, looks good in... Uh, has a good butt. I don't know what to tell uh, you. Yeah, also, also can play drums and plays a mean trumpet. Yep. 
Yep, that's really when I'm thinking about shoot stylus. I'm thinking about that. That's <laughs> trumpets priority number one. Um, but all right, there we go. There's some shoot style on our list. Next up, match number six. I would does that on cop. Swinging forearm uppercut underneath the chain. Jones trying the same, and it landed pretty well too. And another one right across the jaw. It's going to be from World of Sport. It is from the year 1976. It's going to be Terry Rudge versus Marty Jones. They have a date for this one, but why? Why is this the World of Sport match you've decided to take with you? Uh, the Desert Island. Um, this is something that blew me away at the time that I saw it. Not a lot of story, not a lot of context, but it is two guys going out there and just having a master class of a wrestling match that can just be marveled at and dazzled by uh, for years and years and years to come. Terry Rudge is like my favorite wrestler that we don't have that much footage on. And if we had more Terry Rudge, I'd watch I'd watch all of it. Uh, Marty Jones is also incredible and stellar, and one of the best and one of the best British guys um from that era. And it's just like this perfect example of that style of European wrestling. I think the escalation, the intricate holds, the increased aggression as the rounds go on, the facial expressions from Terry Rudge. Um, the escape from Marty Jones. It's just everything I love about British wrestling. And um, I realized about me is that like British wrestling or like British wrestling flavored stuff is part of maybe what appeals to me the most in wrestling these days. Um, I just love the escapes. I love the personality where like these guys aren't like big colorful characters on the surface, but they act like normal people. And they react normal people. Then they react the way normal people would in a wrestling match or a grappling contest, where like gradually, if someone is like getting the best of you, you would get annoyed and a little frustrated, and you might start acting a little bit more aggressively than you would be when the match first started. And that's why that stuff appeals to me a lot. And this is the pinnacle of that era for me. Again, like the Tamora Takata match, I would still call it one of the best matches ever even though it doesn't have a lot of the story and layers and drama and shit that I would, I care about still. Oh, not well too, um, rather, but yeah, just adore this match and I could watch it forever, honestly. Like, and there's a lot of world of sports stuff like this where I could watch a whole bunch of Jim Brace matches or some Dalton Boschick matches or John Cortez or um, anything like those guys. But this is the one for me that just really sealed the deal. And, like, this style is, like, what I'm really into at the moment. This period in uh, European wrestling is really interesting. It seems like a lot of this stuff is both classic, uh, timeless, rather, I guess, uh, as well as feeling cutting edge, regardless of what year I watch it in. Um, Everything feels as... Rudge will always be as rough as anyone going today. Uh, mm-hmm. Jones will always feel as talented uh, as anyone else. Um, it's just such a odd feeling to watch some of this older stuff and always 
and feel like maybe we haven't come as far as I thought slash um, just th- these they're so good so so long ago. Um, you, you know what it is? It's like I feel like those um, styles, especially in, in those time periods, it's like because we sort of like discovered them so late and because people like Zack Sabre Jr. are sort of like revitalizing it and Jack Gallagher and Drew Gulak, um, Jonathan Gresham, guys are like, oh, even Mike Quackenbush, too, like guys who are like very like much inspired by those kind of grapplers is that maybe we weren't paying attention to these guys the way we should have. And then once we see like these guys who are doing these um intricate and colorful wrestling holds, we go back and see where they got them from. And there's still a lot of shit that these guys aren't doing that these guys and were doing in 1976 and 1975. That blows my mind. Lucha is a lot of, is a lot of the same way where you can go and watch some El Dandy matches and some on hell and Azteca matches or some grand coaches or, um, um, America Roca matches. And you'd be like, how come nobody is doing this stuff nowadays? Because it just fits into like what people are looking for in this current wrestling climate and like these fancy holes and joint manipulation. Yeah, it's, yeah, I think you picked a very, very nice match here to kind of complement some of the other stuff you have going on here. Um, I wonder you say bad matches. <laughs> no, no, Quinn, that would be rude. You are a, a guest on this podcast. Um, the the uh, matches prior is kind of a mix of different elements so far. We have something that's uh, some stuff that's nostalgic. We have stuff that's uh, layered storylines that build off your relationships with the wrestlers. Um, and a lot of relationship-based stuff. Then you have the Tamara Lashley style match uh, previously. Um, this one feels like the least one. You, the one you probably have the least emotional attachment to. Uh, it'd be fair But still a a fine professional wrestling belt. With that, we're gonna move on to your seventh match on Best on Comp. The only person in this crowd that matters. And that's the young lady with the Brian Danielson t-shirt. Get out of the way, kids. Do you want five more minutes? Or do you want that to be the end of it? It is going to be from the Triple X Wrestling Promotion in the UK, uh, taking place on March 2nd of 2008. I don't know what the event was called. I don't know what the venue, but it was Brian Danielson versus Zack Sabre Jr. Why is this match? It feels evident, but why was this match uh, on your Desert Iron Comp, Gwen? Okay, so if you haven't noticed by the date that Sam said, um, this match is almost um, at its 10-year anniversary. Um, Sam, when is this going out? This is probably going to go out Saturday, so we'll probably go out the day after. Right, so this is going to be, the, like, you're going to be hearing this the day after this match, like, turns 10 years old. And I have a podcast going out um, that I did with Jamesy talking about this match and why it's significant. And, um... 
Brian Danielson is the greatest wrestler to ever live. And Jack Saber Jr. is the person I think is the best wrestler in the world currently. So Zack Saber Jr. wasn't that guy in 2008. Obviously, he's very young, 20 years old. Um, uh, he's only working local promotion so far, and like the only buzz he has really going for him is like from like a really niche section of the audience because British wrestling is still in a dark period where like there isn't a lot going on and there aren't many viable promotions or even ones that people are paying attention to. Um, and here we have Brian Danielson, who I think is firmly the best wrestler in the world still because guys like um, Samoa Joe and AJ Styles and CM Punk are like stuck in a place where like they're not really able to have as many great matches as they were before. So it's the undisputed best wrestler in the world kind of like looking in a guy that was sort of become his reflection, so to speak, all these years later because Zach picked up so much stuff from Danielson and um, to me it's just like watching Danielson stretch Zach and have these like great mad exchanges uh, and wrestle so passionately and so hard in a setting that he didn't have to this is a very small promotion there's a promotion that didn't that doesn't exist anymore and that after this match didn't exist and returned under under like a like several different names there's a lot of stuff going on here um and there's like 20 or 30 people in the crowd here and you could brian Daniels could easily just be like there's nobody here they're gonna keep it simple um work like 14 minutes 15 minutes and get out of here because what's the point but he gives his all. He shines Zach up really nice in spite of uh, just stretching him and beating the shit out of him the way he does. There's great escalation in how the match builds. Uh, now, the reason why it's on my list, really, is because there's a fuck-up during this match in which the referee counts three on something that wasn't supposed to be a finish. And again, we're in a small, intimate bar there's no one else really there. There's 20, 30 people. There's no reason to be like, okay, we need to fix this. But Daniels is like, okay, I have an idea and we're going to make this two or three falls. But he does it in a way that's so fucking clever. Because he goes up to a little girl after the referee and the ring announcer admit that it was a mistake. And Daniels takes a microphone and says, do you guys want to see us go five or so more minutes, right? But he says, none of your opinions matter. I'm going to ask this little girl in the Brian Danielson t-shirt. And she says, I want to see you guys go for another 30. And this winds up being an impromptu another fall, which Zach wins. The pace is quickened, and Zach gets him with another pin combination. So now they're one and one. And because they're one and one, Danielson's like, okay, let's have another fall. And these guys go at it again and again and again. And Brian Danielson beats him with a with a, with a roll-up of his own. And to me, it's just brilliant that they made a two out of three falls match on the fly because the, the finish got fucked up. And because Danielson didn't have to do this. He is the guy in independent wrestling. He has no one that he has to, like, be like, okay, maybe that's him. Like, maybe Chris Hero, depending on how much you like his stuff in, like, 2008. But 
to me, it's like clearly Danielson is that guy. And there was no reason for him to like kill himself and like give even more than he had to. Especially like I think he's like a year out from signing the WWE. He's done everything that he can that's possible on the independent wrestling level. There was no reason for him to be in this small bar in England and be like, yeah, I'm going to wrestle for like another like 10 or 15 minutes. But he does anyway because he's the greatest wrestler of all time and he wanted to do right by the fans and do right by Zack Sabre Jr. And I think Zack Sabre Jr. takes a lot of these lessons and teachings from Daniel Bryan or Bryan Danielson as um, the years go on. I think a lot of the way Zack Sabre Jr. will control a guy and manipulate a guy's joints and arms is more reminiscent of Bryan Danielson than anyone else. And I think that's no coincidence seeing how Brian Danielson did that to him all those years ago. He just like learned that was the way to do it. So this is where I, th- I see the starting point of Zack Sabre Jr. like really understanding um, all these things as a young as a young kid, and then where we see him now. And uh, this is just an example of why Brian Danielson is the greatest. For me, this was at one point. Uh... In 2010, 2011, that time period, I was into the 16 karat tournaments, um, and I heard about the Danielson versus Saber Jr. match, but could never find it. Uh, I can I mean, like... it's, it's, a, it's very much a holy grail kind of thing that, like, like legitimately, I, I didn't, I forgot to talk about that, but like, I spent like months with Trask looking for this match, and then Trask found a site that was hosting like this promotion and other and other European stuff that I had never heard of before and that's where I wound up getting this match and like I uploaded it to YouTube for anyone that wants to see it but I it was a match I was like wow I did, I'm, I'm never going to see this and then we wound up find, finding the site that that had the um, show on it and I was just like ecstatic that I had finally found this match that I had been searching for and that it just gave me even more like reason to just like be in love with like Brian Danielson as this like wrestler and like spokesperson for professional wrestling. So your next job is to dig up the two his two thousand eight uh camp show run. Uh so <laughs> if you could get on that, that'd be tremendous. Um if I could find camp show stuff for like Danielson and Hero, like you have no idea how fast I'd be uploading it. Oh goodness, oh goodness. He has so many matches with James James Mason. Oh, cage match. You did me dirty here. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I I haven't had time to watch the match. It's one that I really want to get to uh, because for me, this is also kind of personal at this point. Um, but for, for you, it's the person that you think is the best of all time against the person that right now um, I can't get you to shut up about. Uh, it's <laughs> it, it's great. It's great. Uh, you don't get matches like that every day, uh, especially... On the lower level, um, especially in a setting that is conducive to doing something special, unique, uh, once in forever. Um, yeah, like, the reason why this like matches a legacy it does is like, again, for part like this didn't have to happen the way it did. Like they could have easily just like went like, all right, the finish happened, the ref fucked up, whatever. See you guys later. But Danielson was like, all right, no, we're gonna we're gonna do right by the fans. We're gonna do right and come up with something else. And that's why this match stands out so much. And, like, I do have that emotional connection because I was looking for this match for so long. Maybe not as early as you were because you were looking for it in, like, 2010, 2011 or so. I think I was 
more so looking for it in like 2013, 2014, and then started looking for it again in 2016, 2017. But yeah, like I was looking for this match forever too. So like I am like 100 like like understand that point too. I was under the impression it was never gonna make it out line. Um, oh, same. Like I, I gave up like at certain points. So I'm like, this is a like famous match for like that time period in European wrestling. It is the match that people remember that happened in Europe. Because look, imagine like these guys like like Fleisch and um, Johnny Storm and Doug Williams and Nigel McGuinness um, aren't like having these great matches that we've heard stories about in England. We're having great matches that we're seeing in like IWA Mid South or Ring of Honor or CZW. So that we this is like the one match that happened in this time period in England that I just always saw people raving about, which I always found fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I I'm glad it lived up to the hype, I suppose. Uh it was worth the wait. Um and now you take it with you. Have forever. Cherish it. Love it. Um, say goodnight to it. Um, but with that, we move on to your number eight match. Iron um, Dozer Iron Cop. It is going to be uh, for the G1 Climax Finals in 2016. It wasn't the finals. Oh, was this the previous night? Was this the... This is, this, is the this is the previous night. It was like the Block Decider, but they don't call it the Block Decider kind of thing. Well, there we go. There we go. Was it Kenny Omega versus Goto that year? Yeah, that was fine. Oh, okay, well, I'm I've gotten ahead of myself. I've gotten ahead of myself. Um, from Sumo Hall in Tokyo, uh, the block decider for G1 Climax. My apologies. Uh, Kenny Omega versus Tetsuya Naito. Why is this match on the Desert Island Comp? Again, Kenny Omega, one of my favorite wrestlers ever, and. Kenny Omega had a weird run in New Japan for the first couple of years. Um, worked as a junior. I think really a lot of people kind of like project the fact that they wish he would have been doing more on a, on his junior run. Because like I look back on those matches, and those matches are good for the most part. The Gushida matches, the Alex Shelley match, the Matt Seidel match, the Mascara Dorada match. Like the the Ryusuke Taguchi matches aren't good. They're bad comedy. But those matches with Shelley, Dorada, and Kushida and Seidel like are really awesome. But I get like the initial like viewing of the cleaner gimmick left the bad taste of people's mouths. So he moves up and faces Hiroshi Tanahashi for the Intercontinental title, has this like meteoric rise. But he doesn't become like Kenny Omega in New Japan until this match. This is the match where people are like, okay, you see everything people have been saying about this guy for like the last few years. They're like, this guy could be a huge star in this company. A lot of people didn't see that because the cleaner gimmick was so silly and over the top and the initial um, debut of it left people left a bad taste in people's mouths. And this is where you see like why people thought the world of this guy and that he can go out there and just have this all-time classic match with a guy that was equally, well, he was hotter than Kenny Omega at this point and a lot of people was to pick the win the G1. Um, this is one of the mo- like, most genuinely shocking moments for me that I've ever had in wrestling. In that, I fully expected Tetsuya Naito to win this match. One, because Tetsuya Naito was really over. And two, because Kenny Omega, like, there's never been a North American to win the G1. Depending on how you feel, depending on, like, 
like Ricky Choshu and all that and all that shit. Like maybe the like only Gaijin to ever win it, but people are like real like distinctive about that stuff too. So we'll just say North American to win the G one. There's never been a North American to win the G one, so like history isn't friendly to that being a possibility. And I watched this match and I totally buy into every time Tetsuya Naido has Kenny Omega down and Kenny Omega just keeps kicking out. And I'm just holy shit, like maybe this wrestler that I love is actually going to go to the G1 Finals. And it was a heel versus heel match to start. Um, They're spinning at each other, slapping each other, being uber disrespectful. And then the match takes a shift when Tetsuya Naito starts working on Kenny Omega's leg. It's one of the best-selling performances of of the last couple of years, I'd say. And I think this is just like the perfect combination of big time main big time new japan main event style it, it has a unique and colorful dynamic with these with the two leaders of these two factions who are both heels it has great limb selling it has great limb targeting from tetsuya naito it has great big dive spots and things that look completely dangerous and unique and innovative it just has like every possible thing i could look for in a wrestling match and my favorite one of my favorite wrestlers won and i was genuinely like shocked and excited and happy in a way that i like I'm, i rarely am watching a wrestling match and even when he won this match i didn't think okay he'd win the g1 i thought maybe they'd have goto win the g1 and then he like winds up like losing the briefcase to like naito or something because goto's a loser but he was a g1 too and this match is significant, and I take it with me because this is the start of Kenny Omega becoming this like astronomical, like otherworldly star. If this match isn't the way it is, if this match isn't as good as it is, and Kenny Omega's weekend isn't as good as it wound up being, he's not the star that we think he is now because he has this match, he has the Goto match, and then he has like briefcase, 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 briefcase defenses like um, in the Build of Wrestle Kingdom. And then we have Wrestle Kingdom 11 and the Okada match and the rest is history. And this match is the foundation in why Kenny Omega became this like worldly star. This feels like the preamble to the eventual Okada match that did did a whole lot of stuff. Did a whole lot of stuff as far as I think that's this is this feels the match that's most like Michaels versus Undertaker on this list as far as presenting this as a, a huge match, big-time yeah. match. It was a first-time match. It was the two leaders of these factions going at it. They never interact, and it was just a really fresh-feeling match, too. Like, there's a lot of why this match is the way it is. And keep in mind, Hiroshi Tanahashi versus Kazuchika Okada happened the night before, and a lot of people thought that was like a excellent five-star match kind of thing, too. And then this match overshadowed that. And that and because of that like that freshness and that uniqueness is what is what did it too. And obviously as you say, it's sort of the one that begins the arc now through of Kenny Omega, the great one, the person that the wrestler that everyone had talked about for so long, uh, then got a weird old gimmick for no apparent reason. Um and then so like from what I from what I understand is like the cleaner gimmick wasn't supposed to be that, but because people kept making jokes that he was like a janitor or something, janitor or something, he was just like, "All right, fuck it, I'll just be a janitor." And then like, 
because the Raisuke Taguchi matches were so bad, people were like, okay, this gimmick sucks. I don't want to see any more Kenny Omega. But like I said, like if you go back and rewatch those Kushida matches, those Matt Seidel matches, those Alex Shelley matches, those Mascara Dorada matches, like they're all really solid. They're all really good, I'd say. And I don't know. Because that because that like initial like um just experience with it was so bad. Like everyone was just like, Yeah, this is a complete flop and a failure. But yeah, like he he gets out of that into like a more like serious main adventure role and blows people away. It was it was a really weird like couple of years for Kenny Omega and even weird now because now he's doing a tag team and like they might be elevating the tag team titles with Kenny Omega this year. Which the tag team titles have never been that important in New Japan and now you're like possibly like these two big stars might be holding these belts. Side note, hoot that they finally bring up the Bucks to heavyweight potentially and then they do 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 another thing and they add some main eventers to the mix uh, at mm-hmm. the same time. So which is probably like a, like a smart move. Like you could have just had the Bucks like face like <laughs> like um, I don't know fucking Suzuki Goon. I mean KES or whatever. But like if you're gonna move the Bucks up, who have like this world cachet, they legitimately are probably like the most like recognized and famous tag team that isn't in WWE. Like if you're gonna move them up, you gotta give them something. And if you're going to give them Golden Lovers, you're also giving them a match that, like, is a decade in the making that people have been wanting for wanting for almost 10 years. A legitimate dream match. So, yeah, like, this was, like, on all fronts, a really, really smart move. Absolutely. Um, but Naito versus Omega. Um, this was just a real humdinger of a weekend also, because the Goto match also got some pretty hot reviews off the presses. Um, yeah, it's it's an incredible weekend. Like, and again, like I guess now, like the like three final day of days of G one stretch is like you're expecting like these like incredible matches because that's just what it's been for the last couple of years. But like this is, I think, like the pinnacle of that, where you just got Okada versus Tanahashi, you got Omega versus Naito, you got Omega versus Goto, which I think for all people's um like match of the year that year. Um, like just varying levels of great and matches that I loved. So, yeah, it was a real like interesting weekend. Well, there we go. Is there anything else you want to add to your eighth match here? Um, I was wondering, like, how big of a fan are you of Tetsuya Naito? And like, I didn't really mention Naito that much. So obviously, like, it was more like my attachment to Kenny Omega and seeing him rise and succeed. But like, I always was a big Naito fan even before like um. He went Los and Gobernamos de Japan, and he was just a stardust genius. Like, you don't really talk about Naito that much, so I was, like, wondering your opinion on him. Um, I don't watch a lot of Naito these days. Mm. Um, I used to be a sort of a fan um, when, in his tag team, uh, always going against in those matches against uh, Morrissey Machine Guns. Um, mm. Way back in the back, um, but it's been a while since I've felt anything sort towards Naito, and that's just because New Japan has not been top priority for me uh, in my viewing right. for recent years. Mm, all right, interesting. I just like because a lot of people that I, for some people for some reason I think a lot of people that aren't like super hardcore New Japan fans they're like Tetsuya Naito is their guy. So I was wondering if Tetsuya Naito was that for you too. You know, maybe he maybe he could be, but also based on. I, I tried watching the uh, Algon match from 
last year. Um, one of one of them, and uh, didn't do anything for me. So I just kind of punted and said, May 2018, I'll try again and see what comes of it. Um, so when when the end of March comes, give me a match to watch uh, for Naito, and we'll go from there. All right, we can move on to number nine now. Well, there we go. Number nine. From MLL's 50th anniversary, September 23rd, 1983, from Arena Mexico in Mexico City, it is Singri Chicana versus MS1. I think this is one of the greatest matches of all time. Why did you put this on the Desert Island Comp? Well, likewise, this for a while um, might have been my pick for like the greatest wrestling match of all time. Um... Again, there isn't a lot of like backstory and stuff to go into. I don't think like you could find too much history on this match in particular. Um, I could probably look and find something. Jared Goldberg might have write some, wrote something about this. I don't know, but like, this is like the pinnacle of like lucha drama to me. It is the pinnacle of violence and anger and hatred and blood in guts and passion that like I just love about like 80s, 90s Lucha de Apuestas matches and like whenever these sort of matches would happen in the 2000s whether it be like Atlantis, um, Atlantis versus Viana Tesero or uh, Candice Lupis versus Trauma um, Trauma Segundo or whatever or Trauma Primero, I think it was Trauma 1, I think it was Trauma 1 um, it's just like the, the that's just the kind of shit I love I really just eat these kind of matches up. Um, and Sangre Chicana is an interesting dude. Not just, like not because he's a great wrestler, but because like there might not be that much of him out there. But like his peak matches are so fucking good. Like I could see someone saying he's one of like the like top fifty greatest wrestlers ever just just based on two matches. Because they're that good. And to me, this is like the best um, Lucha de Apuestas match ever. Um, was for a long time the best match I'd ever seen. And, and it's still like in that top three, rotating top five or whatever of matches for me. And like, I just can't, I always marvel at it. Because even as someone that is super into Lucha Libre, this match just always floors me. There's like a few things like I will always floor me. Like I'll always be like, Amazed and dazzled by a Negro, a Negro Casas and El Hijo del Sancho match. I'll always be like dazzled seeing LA Park still be like a great wrestler um, at his size and at his age. There are things like that will always amaze me, and this match is one of those things. I'm not like, I always got a match from like 1976 on here, so I'm not opposed to old wrestling. Like, I don't, I'm not like 
super into that where I'll be like watching a whole bunch of territories. If I'm watching older wrestling, it's either from another country or it's from like a territory that like isn't like exactly like super highly revered, like Portland or AWA. Or I'm like watching Puerto Rico. So like it to me it's just one of those matches like it's why I just I'm just so interested in like older wrestling from other regions of the world because it's like the like the perfect brawl to me it's angry it's hateful it's bloody it's violent it's dramatic it's paced really well and i don't think like realistically there are many matches i could like hear arguments for being like better than if i like was like making a like top matches ever list for myself yeah it's the only match that's really made me question my number one match of all time um what's your number one uh, Tully versus Magnum. I quit I, in the uh, cage. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're so chalk. <laughs> <laughs> so says the, says, the, says the person that has Kenny Omega versus Okada from Dominion. But honestly, I blood is in my my eyes a integral part to some of the greatest professional wrestling matches of all time. Lucha yeah. bloodbaths are uh, now. I view them as some of the elite tier of professional wrestling matches. Oh, I agree. Like, there's, like, even, like, a low-scale, like, bloody Lucha Day plus this match of bloody Lucha Bros, like, fucking great. Like, even something like Impossible versus Valon Pago happening at IWRG, and I'm not saying it's, like, low-scale. I'm saying it's, like, just, like, for, like, circumstances and whatever else. Like, it's not a big match, but you're like, wow, like, that was awesome. There was blood. It was violent. All right, cool. But when it gets to, like, that pinnacle and that top level, like, Something like um, Parada Morgan versus El Dandy, where Parada like blades his eye, or um, Satanico versus Dandy, or Emilio Charles versus Dandy, or Atlantis versus Viano Cesaro, or um, like something like that, or uh, like fucking what, like Jerry Estrada versus uh, Babyface or whatever, like like that stuff. Like just there's a floor there, and the floor is like. Almost always great. <laughs> and you really rarely see one of those Bologna Lucha matches um, that is not elevated by the, the environment, the crowds, mm-hmm. uh, the arena. Um, even now, more modern, great uh, Lucha Brawls, uh, the Black Terry ones. Um, or, even like, or even like Rush vs. LA Park from Elite in 2016. Exactly, exactly. There's a, there's a special feel to them. Uh, and the yeah. crowd is never... You never see a flat crowd for a bloody Lucha Brawl. Um, I think, like, for me, like, like Lucha Libre, like, when they're having these, like, Lucha de Apuestas, like, bloody, dramatic, passionate matches of, like, the closest thing we'll ever get to, like, gladiators fighting in a stadium. Because, like, the crowd is so, like, bloodthirsty and lustful for violence that it's almost uncomfortable, but it, like, just raises the stakes for the match because like they just have to keep fighting and fighting and fighting like for themselves obviously because like the, uh, like a mask is on the line their hair is on the line or whatever but like the crowd just wants to see them like keep going and going and going and like there's nothing like it yeah and in the gladiator analogy uh they hate each other but without the crowd there um their blood is meaningless to an extent um well there we go one of the greatest matches of all time. 
at number nine. And now we move on to your tenth match, your final match on your Desert Comp. From WXW, the 13th anniversary tour, Hamburg, um, taking place on November 16th, 2013, is going to be Axel Dieter Jr. and Damak versus Big Daddy Walter and Robert Dreisker. Why is this match on your Desert Island comp, Gwen? So, if you remember... Because a lot of us wouldn't shut up about this match. We wound up making Sam watch it um, on a past episode of We Don't Know Wrestling. I think Harrison was on the show. Um, and the match, it's a match that like, fucking floored me when I first saw it. Because like, I'm a big WXW guy, but like I've also like haven't seen like all the house shows and tour shows and all that shit they would upload. More like, more seen like the big shows. And, um, Harrison had made a list of like the top 50 WXW matches ever. And I went back and looked at it, and he had Robert Dreisker and Walter versus Demack and Axel Jr. 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 at number one. And I was like, huh, like over something like Brian Danielson versus Chris Hero from like Carrot 2008 or um, something like um, Leaders of the New School versus Future Shot from Sistine Carrot Gold, I believe, 2011 or whatever. Like, huh, all right. It's an interesting choice. I've never seen this match. So I went on WXW now and I watched this match and I came back thinking, why the fuck didn't I watch this sooner? Because it's everything I love about wrestling again. It's two big fucking dudes in Big Daddy Walter and Robert Dreisker. Dreisker, who's much bigger then than he wasn't, much bigger then than he is now. He's lost a considerable amount of weight, so good for him there. Um, versus these like young upstarts and Axel Dieter Jr. in the Mac and it's a hot crowd it's um, the hometown of both Dieter Jr. and the Mac Axel Dieter, Jr.'s, Axel Dieter Jr.'s father is in the crowd and that's going to be a important part of something I bring up in a little bit but uh, the beatdown that Dreisker and Walter give the Mac and Dieter Jr. is otherworldly great it is just big dudes being big and dominating and destroying these small, plucky babyface underdogs. It is brutal to watch them just squish them and squash them and throw them around and just manhandle them the way they did. And it just one of the best control segments I've ever seen, I would go out there and say. And I'm not like super I'm not a super big fan of the Mac Russell Dieter Jr. Um I think they're good, but, like, I have no, like, real attachment to these guys. But, you know, I had to feel sympathy for actually Dieter Jr. in this situation. You know, he's in his hometown, getting the shit beat out of him in front of his father. He's bleeding all over the place. It's an awesome blade job. Goes through a table or a bench more so. Um, and there's, moment, there's a moment where Dieter Jr. is in a hold, and his father is in front of the ring, and, like, he's pushing the ropes toward Dieter Jr. to, like, help him out. So he's, like, trying to help his son and save him from this, like, fucking merciless beatdown that he's getting. And there's an awesome little touch there. And, um, Namak and Dieter Jr. keep fighting. There's a whole bunch of crowd heat. It's a, the hand, like, whatever, like, like venue WXW runs in Hamburg is stellar and one of the best crowds in wrestling perennially. Whenever they show up, it's just always a hot crowd. And there's, it's no exception here. And 
Vader Jr. and the Mac wind up winning and fighting through all the adversity that Walter and Dreisker put them through. And that's the first titles that Vader Jr. and the Mac win in WXW. And he got, and they got to do it in their hometown. Vader got to do it in front of his father. And it's just a really feel-good moment. And something that, you know, if you enjoy watching matches that like make you feel good and have like a happy ending. And I'm someone that like, sometimes I like to, I like a, I like a little bit of a harsh, harsh ending sometimes. I like something that like kind of like deflates you in a good way sometimes. And this is one that is just like the like peak happy ending in wrestling for me. Um, I think it's the best tag match um, that's never took place in Japan because like I think the All Japan tag matches from the late 80s um, up until like 97 are like the best tag, match I've, tag matches I've ever seen. So for me to say like this is the best like non-All Japan tag match I've ever seen is saying a lot because like there's obviously like Rock and Roll Express and Midnight Express and fantastic matches that like people will throw out there in that conversation. But for me like like um, the outsider versus outsider versus Hot and Spicy is like that match for me. This match, obviously, as you were talking about, you made me watch. Uh, it really is a tremendous match. I think now looking at what WXW is doing now. This sort of style is sort of the uh, pin for their, a lot of their greatness uh, of late, I would say. A lot of their kind of high-volume output and great match territory comes from kind of the... Not, I don't know, not the structure, because obviously there's different elements at play with Walter and uh, Dreisker being huge dudes. Um, right, 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 but even something like um, like that dead end tag from last year it was um, David Sawyer Simmons versus Walter and um, Exeter Junior. Like this match is like sort of like the inverse of it, where like you get Walter and Exeter Junior beating the shit out of David Starr, and Yaron Simmons coming in and making the save in front of this same crowd just a few years later. Like it's like the same structure and formula of like being slow and having like a little bit of Southern tag psychology. And then, like, building into, like, this big bomb-throwing fest that you'd expect to see in all Japan. Yep, and I, uh, their use of set pieces uh, is real good. Uh, I, I just think this is a really, really strong tag ma- match and is one of the best you'll find in recent memory. Um, mm. And the U- the European scene, uh, I I should say, Big Daddy Walter may be one of the best tag wrestlers that we'll see. Um that... Yeah, like, I think about it more and more sometimes. It's, like, I think the best tag wrestlers of, like, the Millennium are, like, Cesaro and Alex Shelley, um, James Storm, maybe Roderick Strong, but, like, I think it's those guys. And then I think harder, I'm, like, Walter might be, like, that next guy because he just he's just that good in tag teams and always has been. Yeah. Yeah, I think Walter's a special talent, but him and tag tag matches seems to elevate things because he's such so good at dominating someone and just cutting them off and working them over in a variety of ways. Um, when it's I'm always gonna be the guy that enjoys a tag match versus a singles match just because that's who I am and that's I think you can do a, more with it. Um, but Walter's really just good at doing that, uh, imposing his will on someone, uh, 
preventing them from getting someone else involved um, and smacking them both if it need be. Um, all right, all right, all right. I'm going to link that episode in the show notes for a more <laughs> lengthy discussion on that, that match. Uh, but all right, we're going to move on to, I, I suppose, the angles, the promos. The uh, ec- mm. there's this is the little extra tab on the comp. Uh, we're gonna move on to your first s- segment, um, non-match on the Desert Island comp. I'm the best thing going today. I'm the best guy you've ever stepped foot in the ring with. And you need to understand, congratulations, Rock. You just graduated from the kiddie table, but you just bit off more than you can chew. You're playing Little League with your little insults and your rhymes and your millions and millions and your finallys, and I'm in the big leagues, and I'm swinging for the fence. You need to understand that your little jabs and your insults, it's all kiddie games. You can't leave a mark on the champ's face. Come Royal Rumble. Understand, when you step in the ring, your arms are just too short to box with God. It's going to be the uh, CM Punk The Rock Exchange from January 7th, 2013, uh, from Raw. Um, Quinn, can you explain more about this segment, why it resonated with you so much that you wanted it to be on this compilation? Okay, um... CM Punk from his um, attack on the rock at Rome 1000 in, 20, in 2012 to um, really post-mania um, 2013 is the best character in WWE history. It is because like you see like this slowly cracking psyche of this guy who like worked so hard to like get to like this top level in the company and then he realizes that no matter the, despite the fact that he has the top belt in the company and has held it for so long that he's still not getting like that level of respect and it eats away at him until he cracks and he realizes that nothing he does will ever be like worth it because he's not going to get that same respect and the rock who's the perennial wwe guy um the rock being the way he is like changed wwe forever in terms of how they treat top baby faces and the kind of material they write for top baby faces and The Rock is back, and he wants to win the WWE title. And The Rock is just The Rock. He, if like if you're a fan of The Rock, then like you're probably gonna enjoy these promos he cuts on CM Punk, and there's a whole bunch of jokes and calling him Cookie Puss and saying he looks like an alcoholic and shit like that. But CM Punk to me is like the most realistic talker of all time. I believe every single thing that CM Punk says. It's a conviction, it's a delivery, it's a passion that I just don't get from anybody else. And even before The Rock comes out, he cuts this killer promo talking about how like there's a glass ceiling and I have to cater to the fans to like get to a certain level in this company. And he mentions guys like Tyson Kidd and Daniel Bryan and Brodus Clay and talking about how like the like those guys like they had to like deal with like the fans and cater to them if they wanted to get any success and how CM Punk got there in spite of the fans and The Rock comes out and like to me this is like the best promo exchange ever the best promo duel ever 
um, you know, the whole guy coming out and we're going to exchange words and insult each other and be mad at each other kind of thing. It's the best segment of that type ever to me. And it's because, like, we have CM Punk, who's such a drastic, like, drastic change from The Rock in The Rock's style. And they just mold together perfectly. Where if you're a fan of The Rock, you're going to eat up all this material The Rock has given you. But if you're a CM Punk guy, CM Punk is just, like, giving you the dose of reality that you want to. And I think for that, for the fact that it just molds together so well is why it just stands out about so many. Um, when you told me to make, make this list... I titled it CM Punk The Rock and then close I had your arms are too short to box with God and the reason why is because your arms are too short to box with God is the greatest line I've ever heard in a promo and yes it's a Nas reference but like the way CM Punk builds to it and saying how I'm in the big leagues and I'm swinging for the fences and then you're going to realize that your arms are just too short to box with God he just builds to that line so well and it just resonates with me and stuck with me all these years later. And there's so many go-home promos on WWE programming. Like, you have to sell you one to show. These guys need to come out here and fight each other or hit the other with their finisher or do whatever. But the fact that this one is the one that sticks with me, like, really just tells you just how well it was done on all fronts. Yeah, I, wa- I went through all your segments uh, again today, and... Um, yeah, Punk really, I, I don't, I never really think about promos and that, and the such, just because it's not something that I have a lot of time for to engross myself into too many of the stories. Um, but the way, yeah, his cadence is, his ability to weave in and out of lines feels like a boxer in some sense. Uh, he just comes at it from a whole lot of angles. Uh, it feels pandering at first, but then you're like, well, maybe you got a point there. Uh, and then when The Rock comes out, um, two doing different... Exa- doing, ex- doing exactly what CM Punk was talking about. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, their stylistic approaches to how to do a wrestling promo um, on full display. And you're seeing the greatest at one, uh, the the Rock doing his thing and Punk doing his thing, Uh the best at what they do, uh, as far as their promos, um, whether it be more animated or be more grounded, um, it's just so interesting. It's something that you, you'll never see again. Yeah, like I know it's like he gets like talked about so much, but like really like, like since CM Punk has left WWE television, it's just like been like a noticeable change in like promos and like however CM Punk showed up, like the mood always changed. You knew what he was going to say was going to be a little bit different than, like, everything else you're going to hear on the show. And maybe I don't even, like, want to see him wrestle anymore. I just want to hear the guy talk again because, like, he really is just, like, that captivating of a speaker. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the people coming up through NXT right now, not many of them, I would say, are great talkers in the sense that they'll feel different and unique when they get on the mic. Um, they may be good at delivering a WWE promo, but I'm not sure there's anyone right now, uh, coming up that we can look forward to giving us something fresh, uh, once they hit that big stage, which is a little disappointing. Yeah. Well, all right. There we go. First segment done. 
struck it down. Uh, moving on, we're on to this number two segment. We got one more after this. It is going to be John Moxley's promo from IPW from November 1st, 2008, um, following a match with Drake Younger. Um, break this one down for me, because I've never seen this one before today, and it's it's something. <laughs> you never seen it before? No. Never in my oh, life. Okay, yeah, that's kind of shocking. Okay, that kind of shocked me. Um, John Moxley at this point is like a fucking teaser time bomb. He is a guy that's just like bound to explode and you feel sympathetic towards him, but you also don't want to get too close for him, glue too close to him because he might try to rip your face off. And that's what kind of makes this promo the way it is. Just a still bloodied John Moxley but Blood, uh, dried blood all over his face and he's talking to himself and he's like really manic and desperate and like really like deflated that like about what had happened and um this woman comes back there and like moxley like her like grabs her and like brings her close to him and it's really uncomfortable it like catches you off guard i guess and then, I don't know, just seeing him do that really just, like, changes, like, the mood, I would say. Um, but how did, like, how did, like, take the you the first time you saw it? Um, I think what really stuck out to me was more so how he finished, um, how this whole uh, rant ends. Um, Moxley's in a... His delivery is intense. It comes at you uh, right down the middle. He's not playing games, not messing around. Uh, it's intensity. Um, it almost feels like it's gotten away from him by the end there. Um, in a very raw, meaningful way. Um, where he's just not sure what else he can give uh, as far as his emotions uh, he, he's left. He left it all on the ring, uh, and now he's here, um, not able to control a single one of his emotions, um, whether that be um, lust or whatever you got going on. Um, the, yeah, if I think anyone that is interested in seeing what Moxley could do on the mic, what Ambrose could do on the mic before, um, should go check this out for sure. The reason, another reason why this stands out for me is like at the time I was really into like watching John Moxley promos on YouTube because people just kept talking about this guy as like this captivating talker that's like this mix of like mankind, excuse me, mankind and um, uh, Steve Austin and Brian Pillman and uh, Raven and things like that. So like when you feel like all those kind of talkers, like and compare him to like the and compare all those guys to him, it's like okay, this guy must be something special and unique. And, like, I'm someone that's, like, fan of, like, theatrical promos. Like, obviously, like, whatever, like, the word promo comes from promotion, and you're, like, when you cut a promo, you're, like, trying to build and promote a match or whatever. But, like, to me, like, I've always been more into, like, the theatrical side of it. I've been more into, like, people having, like, unique deliveries and cadences and, like, content and what they're saying. And that's why people like Raven and Cactus Jack always, like, appealed to me more for what they were saying in their promos. And John Moxley is another guy where 
listening to what he says and what he talks about was always so captivating and unique because he's coming at it from angles that many people aren't talking about. And I'm a really sick guy is the pinnacle of that where you feel for him, but you really just want to stay away from the guy because he just seems on edge and really dangerous at the same time. Absolutely. I think that's, he perfectly conveys that. Um, whether that is meant to be real or not, it feels very in in the moment uh, feeling. Um, but yeah, I will also be looking that in the episode description. Uh, Moxley, what a what a promo! Yeah, like man, like it kind of sucks. So like he he. He is a really good babyface, a surprisingly good babyface. Um, when he first got signed, I definitely did not think he'd wind up being like one of the perennially like best babyfaces on the roster, but that's just what happened. But like, there's a whole other side of the dude that just like hasn't been used yet on the main roster, and like, if it never happens, like he, if he never turns heel, if he never just gets to cut loose, I'll be disappointed. But like, he's reliable. He can be used on house shows on top and all this and all that stuff. I get it, but he's an incredible talker. And if you just like just let him go out there and just be that kind of like really not the lunatic fringe kind of shit that like we talk about now, even though even that character has its moments. It's like if you just let him go out there and be this like this guy that like makes everybody uncomfortable and what he says, like I think that'd be great. Or even if you wanted to like put some variation on it and so make it something more WWE friendly, I think it could work. But I'm just really hoping when Ambrose comes back and he um, returns from injury that he's a heel. Yeah, I, I, it'd be interesting to see how he could uh, mainstream this approach. Um, mm-hmm. Because a lot of it relies on making the viewer uncomfortable to a degree. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I am. Um, I would be all for that. Well, there we go. That's that's segment number two. That's the twelfth thing on your desk. Uh, we're moving on to the final segment on your desert island compilation. Um, no matter what, right? Case in point, you feigned a knee injury uh, for almost a month. You blatantly lied about it to me. You lied to Batista. Whoa, 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 whoa. Now, I might be splitting hairs here, but I was very clear about the fact that I was going to do whatever it took to win, and I did that. I didn't lie to Batista, I didn't lie to the people. Technically, the only person I lied to was you. From Raw, June 9th, 2008, the highlight reel segment with Chris Jericho and Shawn Michaels. Why is this one of the three segments you want to take with you, Quentin? This is... um, Something I love in wrestling is when a heel is justified in their actions. Like, not every bad guy has to be a mustache-twirling evil villain. Sometimes when someone does a bad thing, there's justification for it. Because the person that's supposedly the good guy maybe isn't maybe like a great person or a great guy all the time. And this is the prime example of this where 
there was this feud going on between Shawn Michaels and Batista, in which, like, um, was based off of Shawn Michaels retiring Ric Flair at that year's WrestleMania and Batista being very upset about it. So these two have sort of a face versus face feud, and Chris Jericho was in the middle of it, trying to like be like a mediator, um, as he knows both guys is like close to Shawn Michaels, and throughout the course of the Batista. Um, Michael's program, Michael's like fakes a knee injury and he sells it really well. He convinces people that he's actually hurt. And then we'll have these moments where he's like, no, actually I'm not hurt. And I was just using it to win a match. And it's very heelish and dickish. One of the most heelish things Shawn Michaels had did in a very long time. And Chris Jericho, who like was a special guest referee in one of those matches and um and all that stuff eventually it's like why would you like do that and michaels for some reason winds up kicking jericho in the face just to show off that his knee is actually fine but again like that's a pretty heelish move wouldn't you say yeah like, jericho who's a baby like jericho's a baby face like didn't really do anything to deserve that and michaels is just being a dick about it so after the last batista michaels match we have this highlight reel segment was Jericho was still a babyface, Michaels still a babyface, and Jericho kind of calls it out, um, calls out the fans and Michaels for their hypocrisy, in that Michaels can lie and fake an injury and you guys will cheer him, but Jericho can point out that he has done nothing wrong, and he can point out Michaels' injury, but he gets booed. And Jericho seems like visibly like shaken by this and upset that like people would boo him for doing the right thing, so to speak, and calling it calling out Michaels out for his shit. And then Michaels during this whole thing is kind of being a jerk too. He's like, oh, well, I didn't lie to Batista or the fans, I just lied to you. And you get where Jericho's coming from when he's like, When did the heartbreak kid become this like sniveling, conniving like weasel and he attacks him winds up throwing his head through the um through the tv monitor and i love this segment and i'll get into like the whole like lineage of segments like this because like jericho was completely right in everything that he said maybe he wasn't right to drive michael's head through through the tv but you also look at michael's super kicked him for no reason at all Jericho really isn't taking things to an extreme that didn't need to go there because Michaels was a complete jerk. And eventually, Chris Jericho becomes a bit of a clearer heel. But in the beginnings of this um, Shawn Michaels-Chris Jericho story, you could resonate with Chris Jericho. And I like it for the fact that um, it did kind of like bleed seamlessly from story to story to story in that we went from Shawn Michaels to Ric Flair. And then, because of that, that leads to Shawn Michaels versus Batista. And because of Shawn Michaels' involvement, I mean, because of Chris Jericho's involvement in that, that then leads to Shawn Michaels versus Chris Jericho. I think that's a really good um, line of stories that they had going on in 2008. And really, it's the lineage of segments like this. Um, obviously, the um, the barbershop window and Shawn Michaels super kicking Marty Jannetty and throwing him through the window is an iconic, legendary WWE segment. And then there's Chris Jericho sending Michael through the Geritron 
and the start of this like incredible Chris Jericho run. And then years later in 2017, we get um, Kevin Owens attacking Chris Jericho at the Festival of Friendship and driving him through a TV monitor. So I just like the lineage in segments like that. Yeah, definitely. I remember this angle sticking out heavily at the time because um, that crash into the glass will kind of stick into your your mind. Um, mm. And it's obviously become sort of a... It has its history. Um, it was the it was the modern uh, the modern barbershop glass. Uh, yeah, I think it's interesting that it, I I actually hadn't thought about it having sort of the glass smashing into the head uh, had that lineage, especially with Shawn Michaels. Um, whereas I didn't think about it m- more until recently. Um, those facts had faded away, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I, I do find it interesting that this is one of the angles that you do choose. Um, but I get it now that you've explained uh, you do like when a heel kind of points out reasonable flaws. Uh, right, because like not like not like and again, like there's nothing wrong with like being like a stereotypical like evil bad guy. Like that's just what we need sometimes in movies and television and any media. But like. Sometimes a bad guy can be like, no, this guy's an asshole. Like, why am I in the wrong here? And then eventually they can start doing things a little bit more evil and things that are hard to justify. But, like, in this moment and everything that had happened in the last few months, like, Chris Jericho was not in the wrong one bit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, all right. There it is. That's your Desert Island Comp. I'm not going to go through it all again because that's a lot, a lot of things, and I'm going to butcher some that's names. A, that's a waste. That's a waste of breath. Um, but I do want to kind of go over it real quick. I generally was there a rhyme or reason for what you did outside of obviously there's emotional attachment to individual wrestlers in a lot of these cases. Uh, there's a just straight up match quality is too good to resist. Um, and I think the three matches that I could probably put in that bucket more than others um, were older matches. Mm-hmm. Um, so just kind of what was your kind of goal here when you're you're putting this list together? Um, it's more, if you kind of look at it, it's like a lot of it is like kind of like the pinnacle of like certain styles. It was like what I view as like the best that there is to offer of certain styles. Um, we get like big WWE dramas. We get violent, brutal matches. We get the peak of one of my favorite promotions. We get one of the best shoot-style matches, one of the best World of Sport matches, one of the best Brian Danielson matches, one of the best New Japan matches, one of the best tag matches, one of the best lucha matches. So I've tried to go for, like, what I think kind of represents, like, the best of each sort of, like, um, um, box I was trying to check off there. Because I always knew, like, I'm going to have to have something that represents this and this and this. And as I was going through matches, I'm like, all right, this fits the bill. This makes sense. This is the thing I probably feel the most passionate about, so I'll put this on the list. And, like, I've rewatched all these matches a whole bunch. I've seen mo- I've seen all these matches multiple times. Um, Obviously, some more than others. But I've watched a lot of these matches, like, a bunch. And they always have a staying power for me. And there's a lot of other matches that obviously didn't make my list. When you're dwindling something down to 10 matches 
it's you're not going to really encompass everything that I like or everything that I remember and everything that I would take with me to a hypothetical desert island. But if it's things that I've just know for a fact, I can keep watching and watching and watching because I've already done it before. Then these are the matches that do it while also checking off the style boxes that I was looking for. Well, that makes sense. That makes sense. You got a lot of variety, got peaks of styles, um, and lots of personal attachment across the board. So there you go. That is Quentin Moody's Desert Island compilation. Um, do you want to give any plugs now, Quentin? Um, you can follow me on Twitter at QC underscore Moody. Um, there should be a short psychology is dead out, um, about 40-something minutes uh, with Jamesy. Um, titled I mean, Dragons and Wizards about the Brian Danielson Zack Sabre Jr. match that I had on my list. So if you're interested in hearing more about that match, you should listen to that. Um, as we were recording this, uh, I, had an appearance, I had an appearance on Fighting Network Friends with uh, Timothy, and we did a show with Andy Labar and um, Brendan Patrick, who hosts that show. Um, we're talking about um, Tetsujin Beauty and Combat Second Stage 2018. Um, went really in depth on every on everything that happened on that show and our takeaways and comparisons to the first Tetsujin and um, if you're interested in any sort of shoot style wrestling discussion or any European wrestling discussion since a whole bunch is a whole bunch of um, heavy hitters in the English scene then I would recommend giving that a listen. That sounds incredible. Seems like a great kind of mix there. Uh... I want to make one more note before I do my sign-off. Um, for the AJ Styles versus Samoa Joe match, I gave the wrong date. The actual date was December 11th, 2005. So actually, Quentin's first two matches both took place on December 11th. Um, how funny. How funny. I don't think that's right. Hold on. They had multiple matches in 2005. That doesn't sound right. You gave me Turning oh Point God. 2005. Unless you got, unless you gave me the right date and wrong event. Hold on. This is great audio. Hold on, like yeah, this is. We need to figure this out now. Oh wow! Yep, I'm wrong. Okay. It was embarrassing for both of us. And it's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am very ashamed of myself. Um. I thought I prepared for this thoroughly. Uh, yeah, I wasn't wrong here. Thank you, thank you Sam, for playing this <laughs> I leave very embarrassed. <laughs> I, I would not have made it a point unless it didn't also take place on December 11th. I would have just punted it. Um, but that was too funny. That was too funny. That is really funny. <laughs> um, all right. You can follow me on Twitter at concrete1992. Leave a review on iTunes. Subscribe. Um, just tell me I'm really good at what I do on Twitter. That's also very cool. Um, and with that, we'll sign off, and Quentin will definitely not go to a real desert island because that would be crazy. I will definitely not go to any desert island or any island of any sort. <laughs>